hear ye thee. Scripture as it is found in the Gospel of Luke. The fourth chapter, verses 16 through 19. And this is a far more familiar passage than that which was read from the 139th Psalm. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of this word. It is an honor to be with you, Westminster, on this morning to bring the message. And I would be remiss if it, I did not say just a word about the beauty of this sanctuary and the opportunity to bask in the sunshine streaming in through the windows on such a glorious day. We are yet and still alive. And for whom do we have to thank? Not ourselves, but the one who created us. And so I just want to stop and take a Baptist moment and pause. Not too long. <laughs> Not too long. <laughs> Semper reformanda. Reformed, always being reformed. Uh, my chops are growing as we speak. <laughs> to your pastor, Donovan Drake, and to all of you who are worshiping this morning, it is good to be with you. Yesterday, I don't know if, if they're here this morning. Are they here? Are Nancy and... Okay, um, just want to note, Nancy Falls and Neil Price on yesterday had us at their home for a magnificent time of gathering for the Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. It was a wonderful, delightful um, event, and we uh, were able to spend times with friends, old and new, including a, one of our former trustees who is here this morning, Kenneth McClellan, and, and his beloved Paula. And I should mention, for anyone who does not know, Nancy Falls is on our trustee board at present. And she was preceded by another one of your own, Carol Frist. So Westminster, you are well represented in the uh, annals of LP 
CTS, and I want to note that. This morning, I am also here with our Vice President for Philanthropy and Stewardship, Ann Monell, and Ann is sitting right here with Kenneth and Paula, so just want to acknowledge her. Now, you, you know the words philanthropy and stewardship. You know what that means. Um, that means that I go and speak, and she uh, moves around with large bags open, waiting for um, all of the sheaths to come home. So uh, it is really a joy for me to work with Anne. We have been here in your fair city of Nashville, where, as you could read from my bio, I went to college. I met my beloved here in Nashville. And so Nashville will always have a special, special place in our lives. We are here because we are rekindling our relationships for the seminary with local congregations, particularly PCUSA congregations, with alums. We'll be meeting with alums tomorrow and prospective friends we've been meeting and we'll continue to do so. We want to strengthen the ties that bind. I am in my fifth year as the president of Louisville Seminary, and it is good to be back in Music City. When I was a teenager, Donovan, preparing to get ready for college, I didn't know where I was going. My pastor, at the time was a Morehouse College graduate and wanted me to go to the school of Martin Luther King Jr. But I had read that Morehouse was an all-male school, so it did not suit me. Um, and I, I had no idea that Spelman was right next door. And um, I found out about this small college in Nashville a brochure came in the mail that said it was on 40 acres of rolling hills in Music City. And I said, Music City, wow. I can go and listen to all the R&B that I, my heart could stand. <laughs> Having no idea that Music City was a slightly different nomenclature. <laughs> but what a joy um, it was to be in Nashville in the 70s and it is good to always return, and I am so very thankful for the opportunity to be here today. Now, let us do a little soul work together, reflecting on these words written for another time and place, and yet they resonate with us today. In memoriam, Emmett Till. In Mississippi, the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till still goes unpunished. This is 1955, Life magazine. It will be punished nevertheless, for there is a higher law than Mississippi's. Emmett Till was a child. One of the country's religions and traditions is the religion of Jesus, who said, But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck 
and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Men can be forgiven for prejudice as a sign of ignorance or imperfect understanding of their religion. No righteous man can condone a brutal murder. Those in Sumner and elsewhere who do condone it are in far worse danger than Emmett Till ever was. Emmett had only one life to lose, and many others have done that, including his soldier father, who was killed in France fighting for the American proposition that all men are equal. Those who condone a deed so foul as this are in danger of losing their own souls. The soul of Emmett Till himself was known but to few, but it was a thing of value. It was fashioned on July 25th, 1941, by the Lord God Almighty, who placed on it this distinctive seal. This is my son, akin to all others, but unlike any one of them. Like each of my children, he is unique, irreplaceable, immortal. I hereby send him among other men who are his brothers. He went and was slain. In the dark night of this deed, his childish cries for mercy fell on deaf ears, but they were heard nonetheless. And God made an entry that night. It must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that one by whom the offense cometh. Sleep well, Emmett Till. You will be remembered as long as men have tongues to cry against evil. It is true now, as it was when Christ said it almost 2,000 years ago, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. Be not afraid of them that kill the body. Fear him, which after he hath killed hath power to dash into hell. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Seventy-five years ago, it is hard to believe that that much time has lapsed. In the summer of 1955, Emmett Till made his first trip south from Chicago to money in the Mississippi Delta to visit relatives. He ventured into a grocery store to buy gum and was accused of having offended a young white married woman who was the proprietor. Four days later, two white men roused the boy from his bed in the middle of the night, brutally beat him, shot him in the head, mutilated his body, and dumped it in the Tallahatchie River. The men were tried for murder and acquitted by a jury of their peers. Their peers were all white, all male, and all Christian. 
50 years later. Emmett's female accuser admitted the story was all a fabrication. My mother and father were newlyweds then, and part of the massive wave of young black people whose exodus northward from the Mississippi Delta occurred that fall. In the brutal aftermath of the lynching of Emmett Till all those years ago. Ten years ago, more recent times, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin walks into a 7-Eleven near a gated community in Sanford, Florida to buy a bag of Skittles and an iced tea. On his way home, he is shot to death by a self-styled neighborhood watch captain who claimed Trayvon had acted suspiciously and looked, quote, out of place. Trayvon's killer was tried for murder and acquitted on all counts. His mother and father were left to grieve. From this injustice emerged a defiant cry, Black Lives Matter, and a movement was born. Death and violence against black bodies in America is historic and endemic. Even the children have not been safe. For me, it started in the springtime. Like always in Minnesota, where I grew up, winter's freeze was replaced by the thaw of spring. And an intemperate herd mentality bigotry resurgent, racism unleashed, white supremacy, the annual rite of spring was my passage in adolescent circumstance. The high school I attended was in a Norman Rockwell-like middle-class white community. Of the few black students who attended my school, I was the only one who lived within a two-mile radius close enough to walk. Local whites of every age and circumstance made it clear that black people did not belong in their neighborhood. Their misplaced rage was against basic human equality. As an academic, my background is sociology, and I have long understood as a social scientist that when the conditions are right, hearts and minds may be disquieted and festering hostilities take root. Unaddressed, disillusionment turns into grievance. Hatred becomes a rising tide. Someone has to be blamed for what is not going right in my life, my family's life my group's life. The white seasonal turn to violence at my school was horrific and real. Locals were determined to maintain the status quo of whites over black by every means necessary. From 10th through 12th grade, I was granted permission to leave school at a different time every day, gauging different routes, backways and alleys, how to get safely home. My parents never knew. The first part of our text this morning comes from, as Donovan has said, the unfamiliar, the unexamined parts of the familiar 139th Psalm. The hate stanza is rarely read in worship. 
and it is certainly almost never preached. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. The third line was my personal mantra back then. I hate them with perfect hatred, with every grisly act, the beating, bullying, taunting, shooting, stabbing, vilifying of my black peers. The contagion seized me. My anger grew. My school had proven inept in the face of my enemy. I hated white people with a searing hatred. Was there such a thing as a good white person? Where were they? Who were they? Did they have the courage to stand? I searched my known world for a response. I was no biblical scholar as a teenager, but I did teach Sunday school. Even at that early age, I knew that hate does not satisfy. Hate does not quench. Hatred is against goodness. Hatred is against God. Hatred is destructive to the human spirit. Hatred carries a logic that inevitably consumes the one who hates. In due time, life would lead me down paths of divine discontent and to an inclusive whosoever witness. But at the time, none of that mattered. I hated people who were white with a perfect hatred. The world is still contending with the ravages of COVID-19. Its impact on our daily rhythms has waned, yes. We have turned somewhat to the known and familiar. The momentum grows. Things have gotten better. We are not feeling the need to wear our masks or the social distance as much as we did. How easily we also forget that contagions from the bubonic plague and smallpox to HIV and AIDS have always been with us. They have lost countless people their lives and decimated entire communities. As a nation, we restlessly ignore the milestones of persons lost to us by this latest virus, the hundreds who still die daily and the survivors of long COVID as well. We are impatient as a world to put this viral moment in the rearview mirror. Already, time and circumstance are dimming our memory, diminishing our empathy for the impacted, detaching us from the existential recognition that the last word is not always ours alone. In truth, we are living through a devastation of pandemics in 2022, of sexual and domestic violence, forms of division, addiction, fires, and floods. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s famously described the United States as an extremely sick nation. Our wellness and health has not notably improved. Racism has often been called America's original sin. Born of this nation's moral and social pathologies, it 
impacts the entire body politic. Now these words that I have shared are uncomfortable truths, but they are truths nonetheless. Black lives are terminated with extreme prejudice in this country. We say their names, we truth tell their lives. Emmett, Trayvon, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, George Floyd in my home of the Twin Cities, Ahmaud Arbery, 45 minutes from where my beloved was raised in Brunswick, Georgia, Tony McDade for being black and transgender, and the list knows no end. In Louisville, two and a half years after Breonna Taylor, there has still been no accountability. Justice cannot come when we cannot even reach the modicum of accountability. The sheer volume of the killing of black children, women and men, and not just black people, but persons of every hue defies comprehension in a nation that is filled with so much promise and possibility. Indeed, with every murder, mass shooting, deadly domestic incident, and turn to violence, a bit more of our nation's soul is lost. As Americans, we desecrate our democratic principles. We the people, e pluribus unum, one from many. As Christians, our tragedy is we worship at the altar of conformity and too often look the other way. We are implicated in our silence. We have not always been our sibling's keeper. The price we pay is steep. And then there is the second half of our reading from the psalm. The psalmist pivots and reminds us that human hatred is neither immutable nor fixed. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are each of us human beings of intrinsic worth in the sight of an infinite God. The principalities and powers of this world will never have the last word over the unseen stirrings of the human heart. I think back often to my early years of freedom's ambitions, how to be away from the searing tyranny of hate that I experienced on a daily basis. In the gospel text of Luke, we find Jesus' first sermon where he reads from the passage in Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In this initial proclamation of the unfolding meaning of his life and work, Jesus provides a clear and unambiguous blueprint for our lives. We are called to carry out our searching commitments to the God of life to practice righteous discontent wherever people are oppressed, demeaned, and belittled. We are called to wage justice, to foment peace. John Lewis lived like that, living a life that was magnificent and filled with good trouble. Ruth Bader Ginsburg lived a life like that. She was notorious, courageously championed, justice and dissent. God has given us the strength to love. We belong to each other. This is an immutable truth. Beloved, 
what the world needs from us, from we who profess to be the household of faith, is nothing less than to learn to be unfailingly present with and to and for one another in the midst of the sickness and violence and pain and death that is our church, our world, our nation, ourselves. It is my experience in life that the safest place for me to be beyond the corporality of my body, beyond the individuality of the self, is to be fully present within another person's heart. My prayer for our nation is that our pursuit of the American way will not cause us to permanently lose our way. That we will not be bankrupted by gross consumption and greed. That we will not be consumed by hate and fear or do irrevocable harm to others along the way that instead we will find those things we are finally prepared to give up for creation's sake, for the earth's sake, for humanity's sake, for God's sake, that a comfortable life conveniently built on the backs of others, indifferent to the lack of others, unconcerned about the hierarchies that demean and diminish people will finally be seen for what it is an affront to existence and the God of life. That we will love our neighbors as ourselves, entertain our better angels, and treat all of creation with care. That we will look upon our siblings from every background and circumstance with joy and wonder as companions on this journey, meeting at the common table, celebrating the dignity of difference, bearing one another's burdens with glad embrace, realizing at long last and however imperfectly that the beloved community, the rainbow children, the commonwealth of God, the kingdom, that these realities are one and the same. They are our longing our birthright, our home. I close with these words that I always carry within me from Maya Angelou. The ache for home lives in us all. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. May we, the church, the house of the living God be such a safe and courageous place. These are the words of God for the people of God and God's children are everywhere.